going to move this over just a little bit because if I don't, I can't see the little clock. And if I don't see the clock, I could go on all day long. So this is for your benefit. It's a joy to be with you this morning. Even though I'm coming here, I don't usually sound this, this macho. Uh, my, my voice is lowered about two octaves. And uh, it came from a wonderful event. Last week, uh, I was given an opportunity to do some training with some young uh, missionary church planners. I think the average age was 24. And there were uh, 18 of them initially. Then when others joined them, there were about 30. And they're preparing to take the gospel to Morocco and to Turkey and to Nepal. And so I had uh, just the, the joy and privilege of having about 10 hours of lectures with them Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. And by Wednesday evening, I told my wife, you know, it was starting to sound a little rough. And she said, actually, you sound really good. So uh, because of that, I didn't treat it soon enough. <laughs> As a result, uh, we're going to pray that I'll get through this, this service. So I appreciate your prayers. It's a joy to be with you. I bring you greetings from Southern Baptists. I don't know if there's anyone in here that used to be. I, I go to groups now and say, how many of you used to be a Southern Baptist? About half the hands go up. Uh, we're scattered all over the place. When I moved out to Colorado after I've been serving with the Southern Baptist International Mission Board for nearly 30 years. January would be 30 years. We've lived all over the world, studied languages, a dozen languages. And people ask me, so, well, how many languages are you fluent in? I say, English. Uh, you know, it took me years coming from Arkansas to get that one down, but I've got, <laughs> I've got a pretty good grip on English. The others, I've learned how to say in multiple languages things like, donde esta la baño? Uh, it's our Spanish speakers. I know that means where's the bathroom or how to say very politely. I'm sorry. I don't speak your language. Please speak slowly. Uh, but that's a part of uh, God moving us. It's, it's a unique part of our experience. God's uh, had us living in North Africa. I studied three different Arabic uh, dialects and learned in all three of them how to say, where's the bathroom? Uh, studied French and German in, in, in Europe, and then, of course, the biblical languages, and then found myself, of all places, spending six years in uh, India, where we studied uh, Urdu and Hindi and, and learned how to say, again, you know, where's the facilities? Um, the great thing is, though, that part of being moved all over the world, and, and for some reason, I mean, I didn't add Japanese I studied when I was in college, and then... Uh, uh, Cantonese, Chinese, when we were two-year missionaries in Hong Kong, we were surprised that God moved us so many places. It wasn't our intent, but what it allowed us to do is to see that God is at work all over our world. Two things were very evident to us. One was that the whole world needs Jesus Christ. I never met a people group, a civilization, a culture, and believe me, leaving Arkansas, just about everywhere was going into civilization. You know, it was like they were a higher level in some ways, but they needed Jesus just like I needed Jesus. And, uh, and that, was, that was reassuring to me to know that I had not given my life to something that was just a cultural phenomenon. Jesus is what alone can feel, is the one who alone can feel that Christ-sized hole that's in the heart of every man, woman, and child. You know, part of our travels brought us to... Um, the University of Chicago. I did a PhD at the University of Chicago, and it's very different there uh, in Hyde Park from out here in the in the beautiful area of Wheaton. And uh, we learned there, you know, that even in the midst of that sort of intellectual think tank where where people have these inflated ideas and everyone is very cerebral, you know, when they were going to make an announcement, they wouldn't put it on a sign on campus. They would they would 
tape it to the sidewalk because people were always walking around like this. And they would stop and read the sign and then they would move on. And, uh, but even in that environment, we found that people needed Jesus, that people had a Christ-sized hole in their heart. In fact, one of the uh, professors there, Mircea Eliadi, uh, he said that man is not fundamentally homo sapien or homo habilis, the tool maker, thinking man. He said he's fundamentally homo religiosus. He's religious man. Because he said everyone everywhere in the world has dreams. And everyone everywhere in the world has a, a sort of a, an archetype. It's like a carved out place in their soul that only Christ can fill. I found that as I lived around the world and it was a joy to know the same Jesus that had grabbed me as a little eight-year-old boy when I walked down the aisle after hearing the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. I walked down that aisle and said, I believe in Christ. What's to prevent me from being baptized? I had no idea at that point in time that one day I would be in Ethiopia talking to Ethiopians and saying to them, I want to thank you for the faithfulness of your ancestor who led me to faith in Christ. And then using that as an opportunity to tell them about how Jesus could also fill their life. And when I look back on that as an eight-year-old boy, if I'd known what a eunuch was, I would have had a whole different set of questions. <laughs> but I think I got the most important one. Amen. God is good. And the same God that's in your heart, the same one that reached into your life and into your family and saved you is the same one that's saving people around the world. I'm here this morning in part, even through this fog of NyQuil and, and this, this fuzziness that I'm experiencing this morning, to, to tell you that we have a right to be amazed. There's a verse one time that a missionary shared with me. He, you know how sometimes a verse will grab you, it'll become your life verse. He said, this became my life verse this year. And he shared uh, Habakkuk 1.5. Habakkuk 1.5, which we, I know, we read Habakkuk every day, right, when we get up in the morning. It's not one of those that's foremost on our, our reading list. But I love this verse. And actually, Habakkuk has a lot of great stuff in it. But chapter 1, verse 5 says, God is speaking. He says, look to the nations. The word nations, Hebrew goyim, or in, in Greek, it's ethne. Uh, it's the word we get uh, ethnic from. He said, look to the ethnic peoples of the world. Then he says, watch and be utterly amazed. For I am going to do something in your day that you would not believe even if you were told. And this missionary said, this is happening now in my ministry. And as he began to share some of the things that were happening, I realized why he was saying that. It had gone far beyond what was humanly possible. He was on mission with God. And so we, we began to say, you know, if your vision for ministry is something that you can do, chances are it's not God's vision. God's vision is bigger than us. And it may start with where we are, but it has a way of pulling us beyond ourselves to a, a bigger picture. And this morning, I want to share with you, we'll pop a map up here on the, uh, the big screen. I want to show you something of how I think God looks at the world. This, uh, this color-coded map was produced by a, a consortium of mission agencies. The Global uh, Research Department of the International Mission Board compiles this, but it comes in from Wycliffe Translators, United Bible Societies, Campus Crusade, uh, YWAM, uh, Jesus Film, and all these different entities together are reporting on the status of world evangelization. You can see it from green to red. Green being those places that now have more access to the gospel. Praise be to God. They've got uh, missionaries and they've got the Bible in their own language. They've got churches now that are beginning to reproduce in their own language. 
They can turn on the radio or the television and they can find a, a, a gospel program. But as you move across to the red, you see the places that in these language communities, these people groups, they've got the least access to the gospel. The Bible refers to those places in the dark red as the ends of the earth. As when Jesus said to his disciples, you will be my witnesses after the Holy Spirit's come upon you in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, he named four places, the first three he had been to, and he had been revealed to them as the Son of God, the only way of salvation. The fourth place, the ends of the earth, was not so much a geographical designation as it was a theological designation. The ends of the earth was that part of the world's population that had not yet seen Jesus. And, you know, if you could have taken that same map in Jesus' day, there would have been a little green dot in Jerusalem and Judea, maybe a little yellow in uh, Samaria, and all the rest of the world would have been red. You realize that? He was talking about taking the gospel to the ends of the earth and his disciples went out everywhere. I, I lived in India for six years and we had a whole bunch of people down there with the last name Thomas. And they said they traced their Christian history back 2000 years to the apostle Thomas who came there as a missionary. They said, we can show you where he's buried if you'd like. He was killed over here by Madras. Now, we do know, we don't know the story of all the apostles, but we do know that that little seed that Jesus planted in their hearts, that it did not remain by itself alone, but it was, it was multiplied and it bore fruit tenfold, a hundredfold, a thousandfold to, a, to where today we can even look around us. Even in this congregation, we can see people who have come from all over the world because the gospel has gone forth. This morning, I'd like to pull back the curtain a little bit on that same map. Let's go back to it once again. In that same map, I want to talk about some places in the red zone, if you will, over there, or places that used to be in the red zone. We're going to talk about three of the giants at the ends of the earth. The first one is China, the Chinese world. Now, the first thing you'll notice about that is it's not red. You see that? It's not red. If we'd shown this same map 100 years ago, it would have been fiery red. God is doing something in the Chinese world that is so amazing that it's difficult for people to believe. And yet, and yet this is the way God is. He has a way of uh, lifting the bar and doing things that are far beyond what's humanly possible. But when we give ourselves to him, he's able to take us and do things. For years and years, for Baptists, I know uh, China was a great mission field. It was for Methodists and Presbyterians and probably the early history, I would imagine, of this church as well. China was one of those places that we reached out into. And then when the Japanese invaded, World War II broke out, communist China, it looked like the church was going to be crushed in China. Communism drove out many, many Christians to Taiwan, to Singapore and other places around the world. And we wondered if we would see the death of Christianity in China. But God revealed to us through that nightmare, through the horrors of the cultural revolution and all the experiences of persecution, that his seed does not die easily. In fact, when it is crushed, it brings forth much fruit. Today, we've seen a growth in China, the likes of which we never could have imagined. For Southern Baptists, you know, we'd prayed for years. Lord, please open China. Please open China. I know one trustee said, I just know if I could get Mao Zedong down on his knees, we could open up China. I thought, well, yeah, if you get Mao Zedong on his knees, you probably could open China. Mao Zedong wasn't interested. 
neither was God limited to Mao Zedong's willingness to bend his knees. In 1987, we appointed our first, what we called non-residential missionary, NRM. And the other missionary said, what, how can you be a non-residential missionary? Isn't that just a missionary on furlough? said, no, 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 no. We're talking about assigning a missionary to a people group in a closed country, even if they can't get residential papers to live there. They're going to work with everyone in the body of Christ to get the gospel into that area. And our first one was assigned as an NRM and his colleagues, uh, NRM, non-residential missionary, his colleagues disparaged him saying NRM really stood for not really a missionary. But I can tell you what happened. As he began networking and focusing in prayer and harnessing people's uh, energies from around the world, he discovered an old missionary who had translated the Bible into the language of his people group 30 years earlier. And this old missionary said, this translation, I didn't know what to do with it. It's been in my drawer now for 30 years. I'm sending it to you. I'm entrusting it to you because this missionary was in his 80s. And my friend Bill, that first non-residential missionary, took it. Worked with translators that now is an entire New Testament in the language of the people. They found many of the people couldn't read and write, so they also got it produced into a Jesus film so they could broadcast it back in and distribute it in the form of, of DVDs into that area. They found also that they could put it into storying format so that it could be rolled out in the villages and tribal areas in that restricted part of China. What happened with Bill and his first non-residential missionary assignment has now been multiplied a thousand times over. We now have more than a thousand. In fact, we have several thousand of these missionaries who are assigned to people groups. Even if they can't live there or if they can live there, they're highly restricted. I was one of those. We were assigned to Libyan Arabs. We couldn't live in Libya, but we lived in Egypt. We live in Tunisia. And we began exploring ways to get the gospel into that closed and restricted country tell you some of what we discovered was that God was already at work inside Libya. We're going to shift now that same map. We're going to go from the Chinese world, which you see was red just a century ago, is today green. We're going to jump over to the Muslim world. And the Muslim world is that area scattered around. Someone asked, why is that big white area there? Why is nothing going on there? That's the Sahara Desert. People aren't living there, but they do move back and forth across there. So you get tiny little pockets of oases here. And they're sort of like the Australian outback in the interior. The Muslim world, though, today stands as one of the great giants. And people say, you know, what's happening in the Muslim world? It sounds like it's just a horrible place of violence with ISIS and Hamas and Iran and uh, all these terrible things that are going on. I never tried to correct people and say, oh, those terrible things aren't happening. There's a lot of horrible things happening in the Muslim world today. A lot of atrocities, and it's mostly Muslim on Muslim violence that we're seeing. But I do try to tell them the other side of the story. God is doing something in the Muslim world today that is absolutely amazing, and it's unprecedented. Now, I'm not speaking just uh, in exaggeration. We, you know, sometimes preachers, they speak evangelistically. Have you heard that, you know? I'm going to try to shoot straight with you. And I want to invite you to come back tonight. Tonight, we're going to have an opportunity to have about an hour where we just talk about what God is doing in the Muslim world. We are currently seeing the greatest number of Muslims coming to faith in Christ today than has ever happened in history. 
We're going to pull back the curtain. We're going to talk about it. I've just come back from, I've, I've spent the last three years doing a survey of Muslim movements to Christ that took me uh, 250,000 miles. I went from West Africa all through West Africa, North Africa, the Middle East, uh, the uh, Eastern Africa, Turkestan, Central Asia, South Asia, India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, all the way across to Indonesia, Malaysia. And what I discovered was that we now in this time, in this day, are seeing 84% of all the movements in history are happening right now. And these are stories you don't get on the news, do you? You don't read or hear about these stories. So I want you to come tonight. We're going to talk about them. I'm going to share, but we're also going to have about a half an hour of dialogue. And I know some of you guys out there thinking, hey, no, wait a minute. It's Monday. It's a Sunday night football. Look, I'm a Denver Bronco and they're playing tonight. I'm going to be here. So you be here and let's talk about what God is doing in that part of the world. There's so many stories I want to share with you about what's happening in the Muslim world. Uh, and, and again, we'll, we'll try to lock in on that more tonight. Um, but let me just pull one story out that, uh, that, that was amazing to me. It was on uh, Christmas morning, 2011. My son, Jeremiah, he was in medical school at the University of Virginia. And he, he took a couple of weeks off and he came and he joined me in the Horn of Africa. I'm not going to say exactly what country it was in. We were in that part of Africa, Eastern Africa. And I was talking with some guys. We were having uh, dinner a couple of nights before Christmas. And I said to him, I said, you know, you've talked about Muslim movements to Christ here. He said, I, I said, I've, I've got the next couple of weeks. My son and I, we've got free time. Take us and show us what God is doing. And they said, all right, we'll pick you up tomorrow morning. That next morning was Christmas morning. And when we told them that, they said, oh, I'm sorry, we didn't realize. Well, they were from the Orthodox world. Their Christmas didn't happen until January. But we thought, what better way to spend Christmas than going to see what God is doing in the Muslim world? They took us down a couple of hours by car. And we sat down in a room with 20 Muslim background followers of Jesus Christ. They were all leaders in the Islamic community. They were from a very, very uh, strong and very historic Islamic community, one that had uh, was noted for its fundamentalism. Of the 20 who were in the room, 17 of them were imams, leaders of mosques. Three of them were women who led women's groups in their community. As they began telling their story, and it was being translated into my ear, one by one they were talking about how they had found salvation in Jesus Christ. And I was amazed. And I said, oh, come on. You know, I'm a little bit of a skeptic. There's a little bit of the Apostle Thomas running through my veins as well. So I, I just asked the question. I said, okay, how many of you have been baptized? Because I knew that for Muslims, baptism literally says, I'm willing to die. And I saw 19 hands go up of the 20. And they pointed to the one guy's hand, didn't go up and said, he's being baptized next week. And so I asked him, I said, what about persecution? Are you experiencing persecution? And they said, Oh, yeah, there's persecution, but we know that our people need Jesus. And so we're continuing to share the gospel. And they pointed to one fellow. They said, this guy over here has taken out a lawsuit against his mosque because he was the leader. He was like the pastor of the mosque. And they've tried to kick him out because they said, you're teaching Christianity. You can't be teaching about Jesus in the mosque. And he sued them for the right to stay in the mosque. And that may sound a little weird to you, but let me tell you what it means. 
in that particular country, there was a famous lawsuit a couple of years earlier in which the Islamic community in that country said, we want the right to practice Islamic law, Sharia, in our community. And the courts ruled, no, you cannot, except in the mosque. Within the mosque and the madrasa, that's your school system, you can practice Islamic law. By suing for the right to stay in the mosque, this imam was suing for the right to die for Jesus. And I asked them, I said, why don't you just leave? Why don't you start new churches and pull out? And, and they said, we could do that, but we would lose contact with all of our lost family and friends. We're staying inside this community so that we can win them all to Jesus. The woman, uh, one of the women who was in the group, she spoke up. She said, you know, God, he became a man in order to reach men. Well, that alone was a heretical statement. Can you imagine a Muslim woman saying that? God became a man in order to reach men. She said, if God had wanted to reach hyenas, he would have become a hyena. She said, if we're going to reach our community, we've got to stay in our community. And that's what they were doing, bringing their community of faith. The next morning I had breakfast the day after Christmas with nine shakes. And I know I'm going to tell you something here. You're not going to believe it. You're going to be upset because you say, this guy just exaggerates. I was there, okay? And we got these interviews and stories. And they're all in this book, A Win in the House of Islam. Nine shakes. One shake they all pointed to said, this guy's a soul winner. He led most of us to Christ. Now, a shake is sort of like a bishop. In that culture, Sheikh was over imams. In fact, this one Sheikh I talked to, he said he had, when he came to faith, he had 300 Sheikhs that he was, uh, or 300 imams that he was uh, mentoring and, and guiding into the Islamic ministry. He'd memorized the Quran. He'd memorized much of the Hadith. And then someone gave him a New Testament in Arabic. And he read the New Testament. And he put it under his pillow that night, and he had a dream. In his dream, he said, I saw this minaret and someone was at the bottom of the minaret with an axe and they were chopping down the minaret and it was rattling and shaking. And I was very uh, agitated in my dream and I looked at the face of the person chopping down the minaret and it was me. He said, four times that night I had the same dream. The next day I went to the person who gave me that New Testament. I said, what does this dream mean? And I told him about my dream and he just smiled and said, you are going to win many shakes to faith in Christ. Now, he later told his parents, his father tried to kill him, threw a spear into his back. He escaped, but he lost everything that he had at home. But today he reports 400 shakes that have prayed to invite Jesus into their life. And I said, oh, come on now. How many of those have been baptized? He said, well, only 300 so far. God is doing something amazing in our day, something hard for us to believe. It's happening in the Chinese world. It's gone from red to green. It's happening in the Muslim world, and I pray that it will go from red to green. It's also happening, go back to that map again. It's happening in this big red area, this, the, the Hindu world, the world of South Asia. One of my pastor friends looked at it and said, boy, India's bleeding, isn't it? I said, yeah, India's bleeding. India is red, red, red because it's such a vast area. It's so huge. It's hard to imagine. One of our, I lived there for six years and we used to pass around superlatives. Uh, someone pointed out that India has more honor students than America has students. And they're all coming to America too. So get your kids ready. Um, 
India is an amazing place. Uh, it has extreme rich, extreme poor. It's got the greatest cities. It's got a million villages. It's got beaches. It's got mountains. It's got anything you can imagine. It's a vast sea of lostness as well. There are a lot of Christians there. When our family moved there in 2002, one of the things we wrestled with was how can we as just two little seeds, two little peas in a pod, how can we make a difference in such a vast sea of lostness? We discovered that South Asia, which is India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, that area adds to its population every year a Canada. Did you get that? Every year they add a Canada. And so we were wondering, how can we make a difference in a place like this? And we knew the only way was by planting seeds that could reproduce seeds that could reproduce seeds exponentially. So even though we'd come from a traditional church, our church in uh, Richmond, Virginia was not much different than this. It was a little older. It had a, a history a couple of hundred years. Stonewall Jackson on his horse was mounted outside to protect us from people from Wheaton and places like that that might come down at any minute. Right on Monument Avenue, we had Stonewall, Robert E. Lee, and all those guys just sort of protecting the northern perimeter. <laughs> um, but we knew when we moved to India, that church would not reproduce rapidly. So we started a little church in our home. And I tell people, when you start a church in your home, and we'd never done it before, it will destroy your life as you know it and rebuild it the way God wants it to be. And we began to find the changes in our family, the dynamics that went into areas of our life that previously we didn't worry about because you send your teenagers off to the youth group, your children off to the, the nursery and the primary school programs. And then all you have to worry about is yourself. But when you're all in there together and your kids begin to realize that mommy and daddy also are responsible to obey Jesus Christ, it begins to change things. I'll never forget when my son, my, my oldest son, Jeremiah, was getting ready to go out on a kind of a group date with some of the kids from school. They were going to go out to, uh, to, uh, to the downtown area. They found that for like 2 or $3, they could take an auto rickshaw, go downtown. They could see a movie and play pool and go to Pizza Hut and then come back home. And there were several of them going. I knew there was this one little girl in particular. She was, uh, she was at the international school. Uh, she was German. And uh, she was really from a post-Christian worldview, but she was cute. I'd seen the way she looked at my son. I'd kind of seen the way he looked back at her. So before they went out that night, I pulled Jeremiah aside. And I said, Jay, I said, look, um, you know, this young lady, she's a wonderful girl, but she doesn't have the same values that you have. You know, you're a, you're a follower of Christ and just want you to remember that. Keep those values up when you go out on this date. And he looked at me with that sort of a hangdog look, you know, Dad, don't you trust me? And I put my hand on his shoulder. I said, Jeremiah, I said, you're my brother in Christ. We worship together here. We hold each other accountable. More importantly, you're a garrison. So, of course, I don't trust you. <laughs> and, and he responded the same way. He laughed. The fact that we had worshiped together, we had gone through this together meant that we could encounter whatever life brought together. Now, here's what was exciting, though. I don't want to just tell you about what happened in our church, in our house church, but a few years later, I went back and counted what had happened, how many groups we had started out of that one little house church. Because our, our mode for church planning was we would lead people to Christ, disciple them. We would talk about church, and they would say, well, what do you do? And I said, well, in our house church, here's what we do. And we started seeing groups multiply. And at the end of 22 months, less than two years, we had 106 daughter and granddaughter churches. That's the kind of seed that brings forth tenfold, 
a hundredfold and hopefully eventually a thousandfold fruit. That's the kind of seed that can turn a part of the world from red to green. And God's using that. He's spreading his good news across the world today. And I, I want you to know, because you may not realize this, you are what God is using. God is taking your faith, your prayers. When you pray, it changes things. When you give, I think God takes those gifts and offerings and he breaks them and multiplies them exponentially to the ends of the earth. And when you go or you send your children, God bless you. It's changing the world for Jesus Christ. Don't lose hope. Don't believe the lies of the evil one who says you can't make a difference. You have made a difference. You are making a difference. And by the grace of God, you will make a difference. Be amazed at what God is doing with you and through you, through your prayers. I want to close with one word that a, a sister told me from North Africa. She was Muslim background. Her name was Fatima. And Fatima talked about all the dreams and visions that uh, Muslims were having in her country and how prayers were being answered and they were coming to faith in Jesus. And we said, why do you think this is happening? And Fatima said, you know, I often wondered until I left my country and I went to the West and I saw how many people were praying. We're praying for the lost around the world and we're praying for Muslims. And she said, you know, I think what happens when they pray those prayers, they, they, they just rise up to heaven from all over the world, and they begin to accumulate up in the heavens, sort of like the monsoon clouds do that she had seen over the Sahara. And they go up from the sea, and they accumulate in the heavens. She said all those prayers have begun to gather together into great storm clouds of blessing. And now they're raining down miracles on my people. Don't let Satan tell you that your prayers don't matter. Don't let Satan tell you that your witness doesn't matter. Don't let Satan tell you that your giving doesn't matter. You're changing the world for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Holy Father, I thank you for my brothers and sisters here at Wheaton Bible Church. I thank you for the, the faith, that little grain of mustard seed that each one of them at some point has had that brought them to salvation and then brought them into your service to the ends of the earth. And Father, I pray that you would not only continue to bless those seeds that they scattered to the four winds, but Lord, bless it in their heart that they might realize that they are a part of something far bigger than themselves, far bigger than this church, something that only you can do. And Father, may we always bend our will to yours. May we always bend our ways to your ways. And Lord, use us to accomplish your purposes, to take the gospel, the good news, the eternal life that we have in Jesus Christ to every man, woman, and child. This is our prayer in Jesus' name.